Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. One of the most important things that we just talked about together was sticking to the fundamentals and understanding the demand and knowing that downturns don't last forever, just like market exuberance doesn't last forever. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Vicki Schiff. Vicki is joining us from Los Angeles, California. She is the strategic advisor at Saul Urban LLC, which evaluates and develops multifamily sites and projects for adaptive and strategic reuse. Vicky also co-founded and founded a number of companies in finance and real estate over the years. Her portfolio consists of her being an LP on over $10 billion in transactions. Vicky, thank you so much for joining us today. And how are you? I'm great and so fun to be here. Thank you, Ash. It's our pleasure to have you. Vicky, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Absolutely. So I started my first company when I was 30 in the self-storage industry. I was working for a private equity-backed firm in Los Angeles, buying assets in a pretty deep recessionary period right after the SNL bust, and learned how to buy office buildings in downtown San Francisco at $80 a foot. But those days are gone. And since then, have founded or co-founded five firms total in real estate, real estate, private equity, capital formation. And my last firm was a lending platform where we did $3 billion of originations and managed discretionary capital for over 2000 investors. Okay. There's a lot to talk about here. (laughs) You started your career in a recessionary period. I did. Yes. And you saw the value in self-storage in the late nineties. I got to ask you, what do you think of the self-storage boom today? Well, the business has doubled. There's some incredible operators out there. I'm involved with Spartan, if you probably yep. know them well. We've had them as guests on here as well. Okay. They're great. They run a pretty tight ship, given that the CEO is a former military trainer. Look, I think that self-storage overall is a micro-market business, and you really need to understand supply and demand. And when you say self-storage to most people, 
automatically great investment, tons of cash flow, but you really need expertise to be able to execute on a self-storage acquisition and or development and business plan. So I think people that have great management skills and really understand the micro markets that they're in will win. And I do see a lot of people entering the market that have no idea. Self-storage is not real estate. It's an operating business. It's a 7-Eleven that instead of selling Slurpees, they sell little pieces of space. Yeah, great point. And laundromats and car washes, same yeah. thing. It's not real estate. But I want to dive in. Back in the late 90s, self-storage, there was nothing appealing about it. There were usually the rusted out, metal-sided places that were eyesores. How did you have the vision to turn a piece of land that nobody really wanted into self-storage? I would say there was rising technology in the market, even in the 90s. I started in 1996. And there were still multi-level climate control, beautiful properties that were newer. Obviously, public storage was a very, very early leader in the industry. And they were already building four, five, six-story projects, as well as players like Manhattan Mini Storage that were converting buildings and building in the middle of Manhattan, multi-story properties. So I think my vision was really of not so much the physical plant being better because that was out there. Although there were a lot of property, like you say, the old metal buildings that looked like they were falling down, but rather how the industry was really growing and the use of the product, the adaptation of the product by a lot of consumers and people just unfortunately accumulating stuff being one bucket and the other is just migration of people across the United States moving to different markets, cities expanding and growing, and that lending itself to an expansion of the market. So just what was behind the market needing more facilities overall? So I picked up on those trends and it was really, I wouldn't say in the infancy of the business, but kind of in the early days. And do you think it was a benefit that you hit the market during a recessionary period? Well, I was borrowing at 10%. (laughs) So when people talk about interest rates being high now, they have no idea. So yeah, I think it was a benefit. I think one nice thing about storage is it does well in economic cycles, regardless of what's going on. You've probably seen that yourself and probably was a good time to buy and not a great time to borrow. So they sort of balance out. But we did well. We were building between a 10 and a 12 cap, building two, and buying at kind of an eight to 10 cap. Anybody under the age of 33 has only experienced boom times. They've only seen the economy on the up and up. Every asset that they've touched or invested in has only gone up. Stocks, real estate, whatever the asset might be. What do you think is going to happen once they see a severe pullback in the market? Or an all-out recession, a deep recession? Look, lessons are learned. And I actually did a presentation at the Best Ever Conference, which was so much fun to participate in. I was one of the keynote speakers, and I actually mapped my career against recessions and mapped every company that I started on a graph against what was going on in the market at that time. People that are over-leveraged will be hurt. People that have what I like to call, and a lot of people in the industry like to call staying power, where you have the right amount of leverage, you're able to weather a storm, and these storms last anywhere from six months to three years. 
having capital available is the name of the game and is key. So to the extent you can weather move out, if you have a retail center, move outs, if you have apartment complex, a certain period of time where people maybe are not paying their rent on time and that happened or other complications that occur during a crisis. Sometimes you have a loan coming due and you can't refinance. Start talking to lenders early. Make sure that if you have a portfolio of properties that your loans are spaced out and everything's not coming due at the same time. So to the extent that our listeners will have to ask themselves, what does staying power mean for you and your own portfolio and how protected are you against losing a property because you have a bad loan or you're over leveraging the leverage side of our business is very key to being successful over the long run. It makes a lot of sense. How are you positioning yourself for what's inevitably to come and how soon do you think it'll come? So I'm a pretty active investor right now with sponsors that are very experienced and I've got dozens of investments in other people's deals and funds And to me, it's the experience of the manager, the depth of their team and their basis. So what are they able to buy things for? Now, I've had friends come to me that are not real estate people that are looking at investing in sponsors deals. And I'm looking at the underwriting and I've seen three cap exits at 10 years from now. And the investor is thinking, oh, great, I'm going to get a 15% return, but the assumptions are nonsensical. So I would really encourage people to do their homework and understand the assumptions that sponsors are making or they're making themselves and leave a little bit of cushion. Really question your exit cap rate, question your rents, understand what's being built in your market. So I think the fundamentals never change. It's just how much are you willing to pay for something and whether now is a good time to step back and wait a little bit. You don't seem overly panicked or overly excited. This is just another cycle and this is how we're going to play it. Right. You need the spread between your debt and your cap rate. And if you have floating debt and you don't want to be too close to your cap rate where you're buying your property, does it make sense? A hundred percent. Yep. I don't mean to be overly technical. And if I am, just let me know. But I think you just have to be conservative and not overzealous. And a lot of sponsors that are out there are not conservative. They say they are, but they're not. And you really have to spend time getting on the phone and saying, let's go through your underwriting and ask those relevant questions. How are you getting this information? Are you sure you're over market? How did you shop your competition? What did you do? Really push the sponsors or yourself internally to finding the answers to those questions that could hurt you if you're wrong. Yeah. So much good advice there. And I think there's just such an abundance of dollars coming into these investments that a lot of the questions often are not being asked by the typical investor. And your cap rate example was so good because if they're buying at a four cap, which is low already, and interest rates are going up, but their exit pro forma cap rate is at 3%, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up, right? So yeah, investors really need to do a lot more due diligence if they're not already. Right. What is strategic and adaptive reuse? 
For example, you mentioned I was an advisor to Saul Urban, amazing company, by the way, run by Frank Saul, who is an extraordinarily experienced real estate professional, ran a publicly traded REIT. So their strategy is looking at obsolescence in the real estate market and converting some of those good bones of buildings into multifamily. And it hits on a couple of things. One, the cost per unit is lower. So you're taking a building that was something else and turning it into another product, real estate project that's in demand right now. So an older hotel into multifamily, an older office building into a hotel or condos. You see these all over the country. And there's a story about returns there how you're able to utilize some of the good bones of a project and not having to build from ground up, but you're also getting in at a lower price per unit. And there's an ESG story. And I don't know if you ever talk about ESG on your program, but environmental, social, and governance, where you're reusing, you're recycling a product that's obsolete and it's great for the environment as well. And that's something that's very important to a lot of big institutional investors these days. They want to know what you're doing, not only to make money, but how you're affecting the community environment around you. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but... You can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at passiveinvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Vicki, the question that gets asked a lot, all of this high-rise office vacancy, can that be converted to multifamily? It depends on the building. You know why hotels are great is because the plumbing is there. That's expensive to duplicate that. On an office building, you have one floor, you have a bathroom and a little bit of plumbing. So I think you really need to look at the bones of the building and then what your basis is. If you're able to buy an office building for $20 a foot and put that money in to do the conversion and it still makes sense with the rents, it's just all underwriting, right? It's what are your construction costs based on How long is it going to take? What's the process with the city to change the use? You still have to go in for a change of use. 
So there's an entitlement process there. And then what kind of rents are you going to get to justify the amount of money that you're putting in to really rebuild the inside of a building? I've seen some great conversions of office buildings to hotels. The Langham in Chicago is a great example. Beautiful project. There's a few projects in Dallas that have done that really well. What are Uh, some of the fun reused projects that you've worked on or advised on? I worked on a project early in my career to convert a parking garage to a storage property. It was in Oakland. It was actually an old Sears building that was kind of like that 1950s, 60s Sears building. And it had a large garage in the back to actually convert the Sears building into a storage and convert the garage to car storage for some local auto dealers. What ended up happening is I worked on it for three years and couldn't get the final approvals from the city, but somebody else came in and took that Sears building, which was a historic building and converted it to condos. And it was beautiful. So I wouldn't say I worked on it directly, but because of my failure to get this approved by the city, somebody did a beautiful job in converting this gorgeous historic building into condos. One of my first apartments was a converted parking garage to apartments. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a great building. In terms of cycles, when do people go all in? So we had the luxury of seeing several of these cycles in in our life. And there's that panic stage when things are starting to go down. And then to me, it's almost like people justify it. Oh, it's a minor correction. We needed that. The economy needed that. And then it goes deep down. And then that real deep panic sets in. How do you overcome that? And when do you turn things around and start deploying capital? I actually talked about this book during my keynote at your conference. I think that cycles are very psychological. They even are caused by psychology sometimes. So one of the most important things that we just talked about together was sticking to the fundamentals and understanding the demand and knowing that downturns don't last forever, just like market exuberance doesn't last forever. So it's really, really never changing the strategy. I've seen also larger private equity firms build up big war chests to get ready for a recession that actually never came, but they still keep investing, utilizing those fundamentals. So I think that the don't panic put your mask on first ideas is really useful and understand that this too shall pass. But this book that I just showed the Ray Dalio, the changing world order, you might even be able to find it online. He does a psychology map of cycles and exactly what you said just now that everything's okay. I don't really understand what's happening. Maybe it's not happening. Oh, geez, it's happening. Gee, it's too late. I just got crushed and putting those safeguards in with the staying power, using logical leverage, not going for it, not over leveraging, not trying to get the highest rents, but just being conservative is a great tool. And the devil's in the details on the underwriting. Now, Vicki, that's easy for you and I to say, because again, we've lived through these cycles, but what about these millennials and Gen Zs that are going to panic and We've built up 10, 12 years of good times. So we've created a huge population of people that have never seen that panic or experienced that, oh my God, the world is caving in. 
is the next downturn going to be so much more severe? Because like you said, a lot of it can be caused by psychology. Yeah, I think that if we look to COVID and there was a downturn in certain businesses, right? Retail suffered dramatically, hotels suffered dramatically. Sometimes people just have to learn their lesson. (laughs) Sometimes people just have to get punched in the face to learn a little bit about boxing and some of the skills there. And I find that I was trained by other people that were very sophisticated, that had been through cycles. So I had the advantage of mentorship, just like you're trying to do with your show is really give people information and share experiences. Again, some people are just going to have to learn. If we have a second, I have a story. So I created a business with some other investing in other funds and we had pension fund capital for big pension funds. And we were trying to find the best emerging managers in the country. And so we met with lots and lots and lots of fund managers And one of the people that came in was a large home builder. He was starting his first fund, very experienced guy. And this was right before the global financial crisis. And he said, I sold my home building company. How did you know how to get out in time? That's amazing. The best home building cycle ever. And he says to us, he had these fairs where he'd open up a community and they would have the lenders and they'd have different vendors there and people buying homes would walk around. And he said, I noticed a woman signing a lot of applications for loan documents in this fair. And I walked up to her and I asked her, hey, what do you do? And she said, I'm a cocktail waitress. She was buying five houses. He said, that was the moment I knew I had to get out. So this on the ground, talking to the cab drivers and on the ground, being able to notice what's going on and the exuberance of People buying at 100% loan to cost and having no skin in the game, he knew that there was going to be a major problem. So he sold his home building company and made a very, very big return on that. And then started to do something in the recession that was able to take advantage of what was going on in the market. So I love that story. Many people would not take that. I would say that was a drastic action to take based on a conversation with someone go with your gut feeling and like what attributed to a lot of your success is picking up on trends. Yes. So great lessons there. Vicki, you've built a number of companies. You've seen a lot of success. What are some of the hardest lessons you've learned? I think that you really have to just get up after failing again and again and again, and just keep going. And I've certainly had failures. I haven't had a lot of big financial failures, knock on wood. So I've avoided those, but I think that the part about Spartan likes to call it grit, the part about just being persistent and getting up again and again, and then knowing the people that you're in business with is very important. So spending the time, I had to invest in other people when I was a fund to fund manager. So spending that time, looking people in the eye, understanding their backgrounds, how they think, just Spending a little bit more time and doing your due diligence is such an important lesson that I've learned over time. And I think that investors today see their friends doing something and see people piling into something and they have a fear of missing out and they skip that step. They skip that due diligence step or really understanding the person that you're dealing with and doing those reference checks and trusting your gut. That's the biggest lesson I think is trusting your gut because your gut will tell you something. And then 
also doing the head part and the heart part, right? The head part is doing the due diligence, asking those tough questions, understanding what you're investing in. Don't trust other people to make those decisions for you, but also trusting your gut, your heart. If it doesn't feel right, go with that. Make sure you follow that. You won't be wrong. Great advice. Vicki, I know you invest in a lot of other people's deals. If you had to invest in your own deals, what asset class would you be looking at right now? It's hard because everyone loves industrial and multifamily, right? That's the top line of everybody's. My friend Spencer Levy at CBRE made a pretty good case at the conference about there's certain retail that would be very interesting to invest in right now. So going the other way. I like the retail market with certain experiential retail. Boutique hotels are super interesting. We did really well during the recession in making loans to resort type of properties. So I think there's two sides of the market I love. Workforce housing, which is providing homes for people that are working class. I think that's a market that is insatiable right now. And some certain high-end retail and hotels. I think is another end of the market. So you get two ends of the spectrum. Those are the two things I like. So you have one that can pay the bills and one that's going to be a lot of fun to work on. Absolutely. <laughs> Hopefully pay the bills too. Yes. Vicki, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Listen to your gut. Vicki, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Go for it. All right. Vicki, what is the best book you've recently read? Okay. I have my books here. The Black Obelisk, Eric Maria remark about hyperinflation in Germany between World War I and World War II. Love this book. I've read it before and I'm reading it again. And what's your big takeaway with our current climate now? Keep your eyes open, watch the Fed, and don't stress too much about interest rates. They were the same they were at the end of 19 and still historically low. Thank you for tempering all of the fear that's out there. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Vicki, what is the best ever way you like to give back? I mentor young people in the industry, particularly women and minorities. And how does somebody get your attention? There's got to be a line of people, once they see your resume, your background, hear about you, Google you, they all want to be mentored by you. How do you pick and choose who you mentor? Desire, drive, willingness to do what it takes, and respect and kindness. Is there an initial test that you use, a litmus test that separates people that move forward from the ones that don't? Ability to admit you're wrong and learn and get better every day. And Vicki, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Vicki Schiff, S-C-H-I-F-F on LinkedIn and happy to connect with your listeners and just super excited to be here. Vicki, thank you so much for your time. You had an incredible keynote speech at the Best Ever Conference. We got to learn from you here again today on your over 30 years in this industry. And again, your temperament, your experience, your outlook on the future and hard lessons that you've learned are immensely valuable to us. So thank you again for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. Anytime, I'm happy to join. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Share this episode with someone you think will benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.